Hey, this last week or, or about a week or so ago, I sent an email to a, a guy on our staff. I actually sent it to a bunch of people, but I sent it to one of the guys on our staff at our Marietta campus. He is uh, the, the pastor, our worship pastor there at the Marietta campus, and his name is Jason Duncan. And I sent that to Jason as a part of just a larger email I was sending to a bunch of folks about the sermon series that we're going to do in March. Uh, we we kind of plan our sermon series, the things that we preach uh, in advance. And so we were planning uh, about two or three weeks ago what we're, what we're going to preach in March at both of our campuses. And as a part of that, uh, I was just summarizing that meeting to uh, the people that needed to know that information, those that prepare the promotional materials, those that are the worship leaders at both of our campuses, uh, those that are on the teaching team. I was summarizing the meeting for everybody with you know, who's going to be preaching at each campus, what the titles are going to be, and some other creative things that we were going to try to do as a part of that series. And so not too long after I sent that email, kind of just within a few hours, I got a reply. He had replied to all so that he replied to everyone that I had originally sent the original email to. And here is his uh, email response. You're not going to be able to read this unless you have a really incredible vision. But what we have here is we have some things that he says, we have this idea and here's what we're going to do and all that kind of stuff. And at the top, you see it came from Jason Duncan and you see a bunch of the people that it was sent to. There's others, I think, as a part of that. And then you see the subject line. It says R-E and then a little uh, punctuation mark there and then March Sermon Series. Now, that, that R-E, that RE, um, you probably see that in your own email inbox from time to time. You can intentionally put it there, or it can automatically be applied to any reply uh, email that you send to someone. So you've seen this. This is not earth-shattering news to you. What this phrase, this little two-letter and punctuation mark phrase means is in reference to or uh, concerning. And so he responded to my email, which was originally uh, labeled March Sermon Series. And so I get a response that says, in reference to March Sermon Series email. So when you look in your inbox, in your email, you see that kind of phrase or that kind of terminology, depending on what email you're sending, you get those responses and someone saying in reference to or concerning the email that you sent to me so that you can organize your thoughts and understand that they're responding to you. I'm not going to sit in this. That's really short. Um, But in response to the things that you have been saying to them in the original email. And so we're going to start a brand new series today just for three weeks, a really short one uh, here to talk about reaction. And you'll see that we're talking here about this in response to or concerning action. It's a play on words because we're also talking about reactions. We're talking about the way that we respond or give action to something that we've seen or heard previous to now. And so it's a little bit of a play on words. But for the next three weeks beginning today, we're going to look at this in reference to action or concerning action and the reactions that we have in response to the things that we've heard or seen before. Today, we're going to talk about the church. You know, the church is often the building in which you meet. If you've attended here for any length of time, you've heard me say a ton of different times from this stage that the church is not a building, it's a gathering of people. It's a gathering of God's people and those who are searching for God in one place at one time, seeking after a common or similar thing. It's not about a building. It's not about the specific structure in which they gather, but it's always about the people that are gathered together. The word ecclesia is a word that's kind of funny, uh, but it's the word that is most often used in the New Testament when we're referencing or it's translated the word church. 
And that's never about a building. It's never about a place or a structure. It's about a gathering of people in a specific place at a specific time for a specific purpose. And so this morning, we are the church not because we're in a building and we're in a room and we've tried to create a space that feels like a church, not because we sang songs and not because someone is preaching, but we are the church because we are a people gathered together for one purpose in one place in one moment. And so we've created a space to contain those gatherings. And throughout history, I preached a message. I looked it back up. I preached a message in February of 2013. So you can go look on the podcast or on our website and find that. But I did a a message that day, February, I think the 17th, 2013, where I talked about and kind of traced the word ecclesia through history and talked about how did we get from this place where ecclesia, the gathering of God's people, into the word church, where we thought about buildings and structures. Because here's what happened. Once we started trying to figure out how do we contain these people and these gatherings, we started creating and building these amazing structures, right? You've been to places where they have built these amazing cathedrals and these uh, amazing places of worship. But the problem was there are these amazing structures there, and many of them, not all of them, are now empty, or they don't house near the number of people that they originally did because the church in the New Testament was a movement. It was a people that were constantly moving and and taking the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth and trying to take the good news that they had received in their lives and giving that over to people who needed to hear that good news. And so they were constantly, if you read through the New Testament, they were constantly taking God's word and they were, you know, just, it wasn't even written and bound like this. It was just the oral traditions and the things that had been said to them and they were taking those things and then the things that eventually did start to be written down and they would take those things and they would start to hand those things off. But the problem was that people couldn't read. And so they had to come to a place so someone like myself who could read in those days could take the scroll or they could take the text and they could open it up and read it to a group of people who could not read it for themselves. And then, I think in about the 1400s, we had this new technology where they made the printed Bible into a translation and into a a means, a, a mode where the average person could take it and read it for themselves. And it was around that time, even though there were different reformations and were different revivals that took place throughout history, it was around that time that the church started slowing down. The movement of the church started slowing down. This thing that had been this movement that was exciting and that, man, I I received something from God and I want to give something away from God to those that are in need of it. It was around that time as we were building these amazing, humongous cathedrals and buildings and then everyone started saying, well, I've got the Bible for myself and so I can read it for myself and so maybe I don't have to go to the church anymore. Maybe I don't have to rely on anything else and so I'll just kind of internalize some of it. And the movement of the church began to slow down. The growth of the church began to slow down. And there have been periods in history, both world and uh, American history, where that wasn't necessarily the case and revival spread and reformation happened and the church grew in exponential numbers. But it was really about that time when people quit seeing the church as a movement and started looking to the church as a monument this stationary figure that was the cathedral or the church or the building or the place and not the people. 
And so today I want us just to look at this idea that what is the church and what is the action required of the church to fulfill what God is calling it to be? You know, I say all of this realizing that we're in the midst of a season where we've leased a building. If you haven't been here in the last few weeks, you may not be aware of that. But we've met here in this place for about 164 Sundays. And a few weeks ago, we announced that we were able to lease a building about seven miles from here up off the Riverstone exit. And we're in the process now of moving to that space. And so over the next few months, we'll transition our gatherings to that building. And we, we're excited about it, man. We've celebrated that, and we've been really excited about what that'll mean and what it will look like. And I walked this week through the building with different people who are going to play a different part in all the build-out phases, and we've been dreaming and planning about what's going to go in the spaces and all that kind of stuff. But here's what I know. If we look at that building as something that's going to help us grow or if we look at that building as the, the, the kind of the linchpin and what God's called us to be, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Because the building itself serves no greater function than the building that we're meeting in now. It doesn't matter that we set it up and tear it down here on Sundays and we may not have to set it up and tear it down there. It doesn't matter that we get five hours a Sunday or five hours a week in this building and we'll have that 24-7. There are definitely amazing things that we'll be able to do in that space that we may not be able to do in this space. But we can't look to that building as saying, well, that's what God has given to us because we can't do what he wants us to do here, but we can do what he wants us to do there. I don't believe that. And so I understand as I'm even talking about this, I realize that we're talking about this action and it can't necessarily be about buildings, but I don't think buildings are evil. And I don't think that those gathering places and gathering spaces are wrong or bad. There's nothing wrong with them, but they are a means to an end. They are part of the method and not a part of the message. And so for me, I want us to try to keep those things in mind as we read some scriptures today and talk about a few things about this action of the church, the reaction of the church in response to what we've seen and heard. What is the church supposed to do? Turn in your Bibles, if you've got a Bible, to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a, a device that might have a Bible app on it. And most of these scriptures today will be up on the screen if you don't have anything with you today where you can follow along. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. This is a famous chapter in Scripture. You've just come out of the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are really the stories of the life of Jesus here on earth with his disciples and the things that he did. And then we jump into the book of Acts, and I have often said, and I used the word just a minute ago, but I've often said that the book of Acts is kind of the hinge, the linchpin in the New Testament because you take the teachings of Jesus and you connect them to the formation of the early church. And the book of Acts tells us the stories about those early church uh, folks, those settlers, those pioneers, those missionaries that were going into these cities and establishing the church. And then many of the letters and many of the writings later in the New Testament reference stories that are in the book of Acts. But Acts chapter 1, Jesus is, has appeared to folks and he's told them to go and wait and they go to the upper room. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and descends on a group of people in the upper room. And we see the power of Pentecost. They come spilling out of that upper room and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in the variety of tongues that are known around the world. And then this is what happens in response to that. And they, verse 42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They came out of the upper room in Acts chapter 2, like I said, and the power of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit power was on them, and they were speaking in other tongues, speaking in other languages, and they were proclaiming. Peter, this guy that was afraid just a few chapters before, he wouldn't even admit that he had been walking with Jesus at all, and so he comes out of the upper room, and he begins to preach, and he begins to say to these people, listen, you need to repent and be baptized, but here's the the thing for me, as I, as I read through this, I see a ton of the things that we do in a church gathering. Now, this wasn't necessarily the exact formation of the church, though it was the beginning of some of that that we see. But I see a lot of things. They prayed together. They broke bread together. And that can definitely be doing a meal together, which we believe in. Hello. And it also can mean communion, which we believe in. Hello. But they came together and they distributed the, to the, met the needs of the people in the church. We do that. We try our best. We have a, a limited amount of resource to do this, but we give in benevolence to those who are in need. And some of you give to those specific needs. I want my money to go, uh, a portion of the, the money that I give above the tithe to go to help meet the needs of the people in our church. Signs and wonders, things happening in the lives of people and in relationships and in the church where we see these things. And man, people were filled with awe. We believe in those things. And so there's a lot that I see here that we believe in as they're beginning to form themselves into a people. But here's what I want us to always be careful of, all right? Here's what I want us to be careful of. There is not one single place in the New Testament and the Bible as a whole that gives a template to the present-day church about what we should do when we gather, there's not one single template. There's not one single place where you, you read and you flip to this chapter and this verse or these groups of verses, and it says, when you gather, you do these five things, and then you dismiss and go to lunch. Not one single time is that written in Scripture. But there are a variety of places that we see different elements and different components that they had in their gatherings. And so what you have, the reason in present day that you have a bunch of different denominations and a bunch of different styles of churches is not because anybody loves Jesus any more than other people that love Jesus. For those churches that believe on the name of Jesus, believe that he came and he died for the sins of mankind, for those that believe that God sent his son Jesus to the earth, they believe in the full gospel. They believe in who Jesus said that he was. They believe on those things that are central to the faith that we believe in. We don't want to demonize people because they do church a different way than we do. We don't want to, we don't want to do that. And we don't want anybody demonizing the way we do church. Because there's not one single place in Scripture where anybody says, these are the seven things you have to do. These are the four things that you have to do. And these are the order in which you do those things. We are, to the very best of our ability, reading through the Scriptures and attempting to create gatherings that connect us to the presence and the power of God. And here's the thing. I believe other churches in our town, in our county, in our state, in our country, in our world are trying to do the same things. And guess what? It probably looks different for them than it does for us. And that's okay. The church, and I use this big C church, even though it probably doesn't deserve to be called the big C church, because I don't know that it's actually the church that Jesus was talking about. But the church tends to focus on the 5 or 10% of things we don't agree on and ignore the 90 or 95% of things we do agree on. 
And what we do is we demonize these other churches and we demonize these other people and we point our fingers at the way that they do church and assume that the way we're doing it is better than the way they're doing it. And I don't believe that. And I've said this before, but if you ever hear me stand on this stage or any other stage talking bad about another church or another pastor, I want you to confront me on it. Because I don't believe there's anything that's God-honoring about that action. I believe if people are speaking false truths, if they are not declaring the gospel message that I hold dear to me, that there may be times I'm supposed to confront those things. But I think there's a process in scripture that calls for me to do that. I'm supposed to go to them. And I'm supposed to take other people with me when I go to them if they don't receive me the first time. And then I'm supposed to confront in a larger gathering potentially. But I don't believe it's God honoring for me to stand here and demonize other churches when we really agree many of those churches on 90 or 95 or 99% of the things that we believe about Jesus and about God and about the church. And the few things that we might disagree on would be the style or the, the ways that we present the gospel. I don't think that's as important as we tend to make it. And I think because we spend so much time focused on that, we've lost our ability to be a movement. We've lost our ability to take the message of the gospel and spread it like wildfire to the ends of the earth to people that need to hear the message of the gospel because we're no longer focused on reaching people that need God. We're focused on fighting with people that say they've already found it. And to me, we've missed it. To me, we focused on the wrong thing. And so I don't want us as a church to be a part of that kind of conversation. I've had so many conversations, it makes me sick, about different kinds of churches and different styles of churches and the way we do church and the way they do church. And all of those things, at the core of them, probably have a pure motive. But man, sometimes those conversations take a terrible turn because we lose sight of what we're attempting to do. But there is no cookie-cutter model to the church. There's not one single way that God has called us to lead the gatherings when we come together. And so we sing, and we pray, and we preach, and we take up an offering, and we fellowship with one another, and then we leave. Now, we're going to get to a few things here in Scripture in just a minute that talk about why we do some of the things that we do. But one of the things that we're not going to get to later when we kind of talk about a lot of things that a lot of churches do, one of the things that I get questioned about probably as much as anything else is the way that we end our services here. Now, maybe you've never thought about it, and if you've attended here for any length of time, you may have you know, experienced this blessing and benediction kind of end of our service. Someone comes on the stage and does some kind of blessing. If I do it, it's correct. If Trevor does it, he fumbles it. But you know, we come up and we do this blessing. Just kidding. We come up and we do this like blessing thing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And we, we go through that. And then at the end of that, we ask everybody in the room to respond and to recite something that they see on the screen. And there's several things here that I just want to reference about explaining why we do that. I realize you may go to other churches from time to time or you may have grown up in a different church that didn't do that and that's okay. And we're not saying that you got to do that to get into heaven or anything like that. But here's how we conclude our services. We conclude it with a two-part blessing and benediction. That's what we call it. The blessing is pronounced by one of our pastors, one of our staff members, somebody that's leading that moment, and it is often referred to as the priestly blessing in Scripture. 
You can actually find many of the words that we're actually reciting when you read Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. And that is, in some translations of Scripture, even subtitled in your text, the priestly blessing. And it says this in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And so that's found in Scripture. And what you're seeing there is you're seeing the pastor or the person leading that to pray safekeeping over the people and to ask for God's blessing over the congregation before we leave. And so you, you hear this priestly blessing. You hear whoever's leading that moment praying a blessing over the people. God, keep us safe and bless us as we leave this gathering together to go into the rest of our lives. And then we pray this benediction prayer together. Now, a lot of churches end with a prayer, and it's often called the benediction, but the way that we do it's a little different because someone's not standing there by themselves and just prays like a closing prayer. We pray a prayer together that's found in Psalm 19, verse 14. It says this, may, the wor may these words on my mouth and these meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Some translations reference a little more closely the words that are written here. This is a variation of the NIV. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So we've come out of a moment where the priestly blessing has been prayed over you, and then we together respond with this prayer of our hearts God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, and then we acknowledge who he is. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now, it may be weird for you. And if you started attending here, you may have just jumped in and started reciting it, and you had no clue why we were doing it. And even my explanation here doesn't help you really understand why we do it. But I want you to think about the gravity of what we're doing as we conclude our services. We've sung, and we've prayed, and we've preached, and we've taken up an offering and we fellowship together and we've experienced community, we've experienced the presence and power of God and then someone has prayed over us, God bless them and keep them safe until we gather together again. And then we personally and collectively say, and God, when we leave here, let everything that we say and everything that our heart produces in this earthly, physical body be acceptable and pleasing to you because you're our Lord, our strength, and you're the one that redeemed us and then we leave. We are consecrating, we are sealing the moments that we have experienced together and asking God to keep us and keep the words that we've heard and keep the presence that we've experienced and keep the songs that we've sung sealed in our heart and sealed in our lives until we gather together again. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we conclude the service the way that we conclude the service. But again, I get that not every church does that and that's fine. And I get that there are churches you could walk into today and they do it completely different than we do, and that's okay. But I do believe that in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there are a few basic universal principles and components that you would see in just about every basic, healthy, thriving church in some form or some function. And I want us to talk about a few of those briefly before we close. The first of those things that I think has to happen or should be happening when a church gathers is that there should be both believers and unbelievers present in the room. Now, I realize that sometimes that's a sticking point in church world because we think sometimes that the gatherings are just for believers, and there's definitely places in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2 where we read, we was talking, all the believers were there together, but then it talks about those believers leaving that and going and going into other places, the temple maybe, or into the courtyard, and doing something together for the sake of others. But when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we are actually talking about spiritual gifts and order in worship 
And this is what the Apostle Paul says to the people of Corinth. Tongues then, we're talking about speaking in tongues, which is a gift and a manifestation of the Spirit, then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues or inquires or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? And I will say, yes, they will probably. But if you're an unbeliever or an inquirer comes, comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convinced of sin and convicted of sin, I'm sorry, and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And let me just say that last sentence right there. Anytime an unbeliever walks into this room, we want the power of God to convict them and not something that we've done to convict them. We believe that the power and presence of God is enough. I think for most everybody in the room that is a believer in Jesus Christ and has a relationship with him, it wasn't the swaying of somebody's convincing words that did it for you. It was experiencing the love and the power of Jesus Christ. And we believe that that's what we want people to experience because we want them to exclaim, God is really among you. And maybe you've been like me where you've been in churches where people experience the presence of God But they weren't convinced by the way that the people were interacting with each other that God was among them. Because surely the God that would do these miraculous things wouldn't be among a group of people that are so mean to one another or that are so mean about others in general. But here's what he's saying. Listen, there's some signs and wonders. There's some things that will happen. And they serve a role for believers and for unbelievers. When there's a gathering of people, we understand that believers walk in the room and unbelievers walk in the room. And we want that to happen. We believe that they should both be present and we believe that that's God honoring. And we want to create an environment here in this place or any other where we ever gather together. We want to create an environment where you can belong here before you believe. We believe the power of community is enough to make people stick to consistently hear the message of Jesus Christ. And that's okay here. The second thing that we think should happen when people are gathered together as the church is that people should be equipped. People should be being equipped with the messages that they're hearing. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says this, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The result of all of this is that we attain maturity and attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in our lives. The days where people come and allow one person to be the only one doing ministry should be over because that's a broken and un-God-honoring way of doing church. Ephesians 4 here says that there are people sitting in churches, this one included, who not just have talent, but they have a divine calling on their life to do something for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we believe as a church that that exists in our church. And so we don't want you just to come to hear somebody sing and to listen to me rant for 30 minutes. Well, that's not why we gather together. We gather so that you can be equipped to do what God's calling you to do. We believe that. We want to create experiences where that is happening 
so that you take the things that you experience, the things that you hear, the relationships that build you up, grow you, edify you, you take those things and you apply them to your lives so that you are fulfilling what God's calling you to do seven days a week and not just listening to somebody for an hour a week. That's what we desire to do. The third thing that we think should be happening when the church is gathering is that worship should be taking place. We worship all week long. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We worship all week long, but when the church is gathering, we believe worship unto God should be taking place. Ephesians 5, 19 and 20 says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that when we gather together as unbelievers and believers in the room, that we should be equipped to do the work of ministry that God's calling us to do. And we believe that we should turn our worship away from all the other things and create moments of worship entirely, solely focused on God. We believe worship should be taking place. The next thing that we, should, we believe should be happening when the church gathers is that the Bible should be taught. We believe the Bible, God's word, is enough to do everything that God wants to do in your heart and your life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I read this last week, tells us the function, the role of Scripture. It says, all Scripture is God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe the Bible's enough. We believe that we're going to take God's word and open it, and we're going to challenge Everyone in the room, and I'm telling you, I say this, and you probably think I'm a liar, but I'm not. When I'm preparing, the weeks that I'm speaking, I'm preparing to speak, the, the word of God that I'm taking in to prepare is changing me probably more than it's changing anybody in the room when I'm actually talking about it. Because the word of God's enough. You know what it does? It gets into your heart, and it carves out the things that aren't of God and it challenges you, and it corrects you, and it, 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 it gives you training and growing the muscles that you need to be righteous, to, to be more God-honoring in the way that we live. And so we believe the Bible should be taught. We believe that people's needs should be prayed for. We have moments of prayer when we gather together. Sometimes it's a single individual leading a prayer. And then at the end of our services, every single week, we have a team of people that are down front to pray with you about the needs that you have. James chapter five, verse 14 says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We believe if you have a need, that you should be praying with other people about that need and God will meet that need as only God can. We believe that. And so when we gather, we don't wanna just sing and preach. We wanna pray. We want to do things to help us connect to God. And we believe, lastly, that people should be coming back. We don't believe it's a one-time thing, and we don't think that it should just get lost in the hustle and bustle of life. We believe people should be coming back to the church. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, which I'll explain in a second, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's incredible theology. Now listen to this. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I told you that early on in the formation of the church, a lot of people would gather so that someone could preach or speak the scriptures to them because they couldn't read it for themselves. That wasn't just something that happened in more modern day. That happened all the way back because there was a a culture that God himself even created in the Old Testament that people would get to the presence of God through the priest of God. And so they would come to the place and they would offer sacrifice and they would listen to the messenger of God to deliver the message of God. And then Jesus came to earth in the New Testament. And he came to the earth and he did miracles and he did teaching and it was amazing and the disciples followed him and the church began to grow. And then he was hung on a cross. At the end of his life, he was hung on a cross in the middle of two thieves, the middle of two guilty sinners. He was hung right there in the middle and he was blameless. He had never done anything wrong and he hung there on the cross and he died. And when he died in that holy place, in the gathering place, the sanctuary, if you will, the church place, the tabernacle, the temple, there was a dividing line between who could be in that building and who could actually be in the presence of God. There there were a lot of people that could be in the building. You could just bring your sacrifice and you got admittance into that part of the building. But there was a part of that that only the priest could go to. Only the high priest could go to. And it was separated by a curtain. It's a curtain kind of like this. I don't know if they had the really cool silver grommets or not. I'm not really sure what the hardware store back then had, but They had a curtain kind of like this. And the moment that Jesus died on the cross, the curtain ripped right down the middle and was opened up. And it was, yes, very symbolic, but it was very real. Because the message of Jesus was demonstrated in the ripping of that veil, the ripping of that curtain to say, There is now no separation from who can be in the building and who can get into the presence of God. And so writer here in Hebrews is saying, listen, we have a confidence now to enter into the holy place because of the blood of Jesus. This new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain and the way that he opened it was his flesh. So let us draw near with a true heart in a full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying, listen, we were dirty and sinful. We had evil conscience. We had evil, evil on, our, on our bodies. It's who we were. But the veil opened up. The blood that was spilled on the cross covered us. And now everyone has access to the presence and the power. In our church, every time we gather, there's no curtain right here. It's not that that's the building and this is the holy place. It's not that that's the people and this is the place of the priest. There's one function in the room. Everyone in pursuit of Jesus because of the sacrifice of him on the cross. The reaction of the church 
should be to respond to that. The reaction of the church should be, I don't want to sit on the sidelines and watch the movement happen. I want to be a part of spreading the gospel. I want to be a part of the gatherings of God's people where both unbelievers and believers exist and where we're worshiping and we're praying for the needs of people and the Bible is being taught and people are coming back. When the church is a building and the church is about listening to somebody preach or listening to somebody sing, it's easy to prioritize it out of our schedule. But when the church is the community of people that we experience the presence of God with, it tends to creep higher up my list of to-dos because the veil has been torn down. The curtain has been ripped. and God's presence is available in this place among these people that we're called to do life with. What did it say in Acts chapter two? It says that they gathered together and they broke bread and they fellowshiped and they did life in each other's homes. And if anybody had a need, they just sold their possessions and gave to those who were in need. There's a lot of things broken in the present day church and I get it. And I wanna live my life so at the end of my life, the church is in better shape than it was when I got it into my hands. But I don't think that we fix the church by avoiding it. And I don't think we fix the church by yelling about what's wrong with it. And I don't think we fix the church by demonizing other churches in the way that they do it. I think we fix the church by getting into community with other people and getting our hands dirty and getting into the messes of other people's lives and singing alongside people that can't sing just as good as we can sing and they sing better than we sing and praying with people that have needs and listening to the correcting, reproofing, rebuking part of scripture and turning and saying, what do you think this means to you? Because here's what it's saying to me getting into small groups of people and doing life together and eating together and praying together and encouraging one another and building one another up. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but gathering together because of the power of community in pursuit of the message of the cross. That's the church. That's what I want to be a part of. I want to live my life in pursuit of the cross with a community of people who's just as messed up as I am, trying to figure out what it is that God is calling us to be and to do. I want us to pray. And as we pray, I just want us to ask God to help us in this local gathering be the church. It's that simple. Help us be the church. And for you personally, you can pray a personal prayer that says, God, as much as it depends on me in this gathering, let me help us be the church. It might mean that I have a calling, a gifting. I'm one of those apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. I'm one of those folks and I need to exercise my gift. I need to use the church as an equipping tool to be who God's called me to be. I need to invest. I need to give of my resources for the sake of the needs of others. I need to live in community. I need to not forsake it. I need to be here because there's people in the room that need me in this room. There's people in my small group that need me in that small group. There's kids in those classrooms that need me to come teach them. There's students on Sunday nights that need me to come lead them. 
I'm not going to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. I'm going to invest in and be a part of and engage in the church. Because the church is not a monument. It's a movement. There's a reaction. There's a response that's required because of what we know exists when we gather. And then if you would say, the church hurt me. The church angers me. The church beat me up. The church made me feel guilty. I would say two things. The church didn't do any of that. People did. And yes, the gathering of people is the church, but people did that because that doesn't reflect the nature of the God that that church is seeking out. So I think today you just say, God, help me to forgive the people of the church that hurt me. And let me invest myself fully into a gathering of people so no one ever walks out the doors feeling like I felt. I want to be a part of a group of people that loves people, encourages people, challenges people, and tears down every single dividing wall that man has constructed to keep them away from the presence and the power of God. Let's pray. God, today, I thank you for the church. I thank you for the message of the gospel. I thank you for the New Testament writings that illuminate for us what it means to gather together in ways that honor you. There is no cookie-cutter model to the church. There's not one single perfect way to do it. And God, we as a church repent now of anything we've ever done to demonize those who really do believe in you and who are seeking after you, but may be doing church differently than we do it. God, let us be partners together with those churches to reach people that don't know you. Let this community of churches in this town and this county and this state make it harder to go to hell because of the churches and the fellowship that exist here and the teamwork and the camaraderie that we have because we understand we're not gonna fight over the one or two or 5% that might be different in the way we do church than the 95 or 97 or 99% that we believe about the gospel. Let us be that kind of church. And let those churches exist all throughout our community. I pray now for healing for every person in the room that's been done by somebody in some church somewhere, including this one. God, if I or anybody in this church has hurt somebody in this room, God, I repent right now. I ask you to forgive me. Help me to make it right. If other churches and other people have been a part of scenarios in the lives of the people in this room where hurt has taken place, God, I pray right now that you would help us in this room to just forgive those people. We may never talk to them again. We don't have to go hunt them down. We're just gonna release that out of our heart right now and not harbor that bitterness, but we're gonna create change. And we're going to create rooms and environments where people can experience you because of the way we love you and pursue you and the way we treat each other. Let that be this place. And God, let us as a church, as a campus of Mount Perrin North, as this local gathering, let us pursue you with everything we have. Let us seek you and find you when we seek you with all of our heart. God, we love this place. So many of us do. And we love what it feels like when we walk in the room. 
but we know it won't always feel like this. We love that we know a lot of the people in this room, but we realize there's coming a day as hundreds of new people gather our gatherings that we won't know everybody in the room. That we won't even understand why some of those things are happening because our role has changed. But God, we believe our best days are in front of us. And God, we pray that as you're guiding us, you would provide for us as you have continued to do. Lead us where you want us to go. And let us be faithful every single step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray.